You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and we are only a couple of weeks away from our 300th episode, which is coming up on June 24th. And in celebration of that, we're having an event on June 14th in New York City. I'll be hosting a panel with three of the most esteemed designers in the industry. You've probably heard of them, I'm sure. Gail Anderson, Eddie Opara, Kat Small. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this. It all goes down again, like I said, on June 14th. It's going to be at the Green Space in New York City. And tickets are on sale right now. So check out the show notes for a link, or you can head on over to Eventbrite and search for Revision Path. Hope to see you there. Now let's get on to this week's interview. We're talking with creative director, designer, and educator Husani Barnwell. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, Maurice, how you doing? My name is Husani Barnwell. I'm a creative director. I also am an educator. I'm a designer, and I'm trying to I'm trying to be an all-around great citizen on Earth. <laughs> well, that's a good thing to be in this day and age. Uh, <laughs> what are some of the things that you're working on right now? Um, right now, I've been doing a, a good amount of freelance work, whether that's been in design or like creative direction, and so. Um, I just shot a spot that's on air for Spectrum. I have been doing some work with, um, it's a a consultancy named Igami, and that was on like the U.S. Army and Clorox. Um, And um, also really just pursuing some of my hobbies like cycling and fitness and uh, just trying to enjoy my time. What does a, a typical day look like for you right now? That varies, and uh, from many of the interviews I've heard in your podcast, the uh, people tend to say the same thing. It really depends on if I'm freelancing in an office, like at an agency, or if I'm working remotely from my home office. And so, if I'm from at my home office, you know, my hours can really vary. Like I might burn the midnight oil, wake up at whatever time that's necessary to wake up, you know, check through emails, uh, figure out which deliverables need to be done, or if I have to do brainstorming. It also depends if I'm working independently or with a partner. And so, you know, there might be some conversations on the phone or even Skype calls with that partner. Um, or if I'm at the office, that's waking up, getting ready, getting into the office. You know, if there are status meetings, handling those, um, then really tackling whatever assignment it is that needs to be tackled. And now the, the partner that you're speaking about, that's uh, your Lambert Barnwell partner? Yes. Uh, we first started working together when we were both promoted to junior art director and junior copywriter back at BBDO. That was the first ad agency I've ever worked at. And um, yeah, he's been a great friend and partner for for years. And we, we still take projects independently. Um, as of late, I've had many projects that I've just been doing on my own. But um, he's definitely a go-to. He's a great writer, um, great colleague. And uh yeah, it's it's a pleasure working with him when I can. Which work setup do you prefer right now, freelance or, or working in an office? Um, that's also a good question. For a long time, I really enjoyed freelance because um, it, it allowed me to to see how each of these agencies worked and you know get to know different creative leadership 
and see how they worked and really observe. Because a lot of times, especially in advertising, you don't always get the mentorship that you need. And, you know, you can make mistakes and then fall on your face if you're not up on it. And so I'd learn by watching people and watching what they do and how they conducted themselves with clients or with um, the count teams and producers, et cetera. And so then over the years, after just watching them for a while, um, I was able to handle a lot of more things on my own. And so I do enjoy working at agencies and working in the office. But, you know, I have to say, lately, I've been really enjoying working at home. And, you know, my, my setup at home is better than a lot of the setups that I'll have at some of these agencies. And so um, it, it's like a really, as you, you know, being an entrepreneur on your own, it's a really great feeling you know, handling a lot of stuff on your own and, you know, that the confidence you get in being able to tackle things for, you know, multiple brands and major brands and then seeing that work that's on the air and knowing that, you know, that idea might have been something that you came up with when you're just sitting at home in your home office in front of your computer or outside in your backyard or whatever it might be. Yeah, actually, right now, I, I am working for a company, but I do know what you mean about kind of that, uh, that entrepreneurial life. Like right now with what I'm doing at Glitch, it's remote. So I do have a home office that I work out of, but then from time to time I'm at the New York office. So I do get that sort of bit of like working in the office, working at home thing. It, it is really interesting because before, you know, I worked here, I had a home office and I worked, you know, doing my studio for several years. And I mean, from time to time I'd work at a client location, I'd work at a coffee shop or something. And I have the freedom to sort of do that now, even with, you know, with this current job. But I do like how, um, I don't know, there's a certain level of freedom that comes with just being able to not necessarily be inside of an office. It just, especially for creative work, you yeah. need to kind of be out there and get inspired uh, by just being out there in the world. Yes. And as you know, too, like a lot of uh, office situations have changed with the open floor plan which is a bit of a farce when it, you know, when, it, when it comes to collaboration and work efficiency, you know, it, you don't really get as much done as you would like. It's hard to have uh, private conversations. Uh, it's hard to, you know, have uh, meetings with clients or whatever it might be, you know, when they're just people all around you. And so um, I know for upper, like really senior management, they still get their door at offices. And of course, you know, in the margins, they, the, the agency itself does better with the open floor plan, but for the actual people, you know, outside, uh, you know, out, out in the open, it's not as conducive to being creative. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, being at home is great. You know, you get to play the music you want to play. If you have to step away, you can, and you don't feel like you have to be glued to the computer um, when creativity doesn't always come as uh, systematically as that. Yeah. Oftentimes I know if I'm just staring at the screen too long, I have to, like, I'll just migrate to a different location. Like, maybe I'll sit at my kitchen table or maybe I'll sit at the couch or maybe I'll just go take out the trash or something. Just something to kind of break up the monotony of having to think inside of this one particular, you know, kind of construct. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. Yep. How do you approach new creative projects? Um, it's a good question. And it kind of points to um, some of the experience that I've been having um preparing to teach uh, as a creative methodology class. And that's, you know, like, as you know, about design thinking, um, it's similar, you know, it's a, like a method that people can use to uncover insights and key strategic um, like concepts and ideas that eventually can lead to great, 
you know, big ideas with the overused term. And so for me, it starts usually with learning everything and anything that I can learn about whatever it is that brand, what they're offering, what the product might be that they're offering, what the service might be. You know, I research the competitors, seeing what they do. I can even, you know, get on to like Amazon and look at uh, customer reviews of whatever it is that it's being marketed. And it's really just like filling myself up with as much as I can about, you know, the problem space and then start reframing what the ask is or what the, um, the key, you know, point that we're supposed to be tackling is. And, you know, I'll reframe it, think about it different ways. I, I might then start um, even doing something as simple as like going to Google and using Google images or even so like a stock house like Yeti and then just looking for imagery that might be related. And then you start to see these relationships. And so much about an idea is like it's a recombination of two different existing things or multiple existing things. And so you have to fill up with those things. And so like, you know, I guess an analogy I could use, you know, if I'm going to create a masterpiece, I'm not just going to use like eight crowns. I want to make sure that my crown box has all 64 or more. And then that way, you know, the ideas can come and flow. What are the best types of clients for you? I know you mentioned some of the the hobbies that you have. Do you try to find clients that fall in line with that? I, I wish I wish I did that more. Like one of my uh, regrets as a creative is that I started to just get assignments while freelancing and then I do well in those assignments and then I put those pieces in my book. But it, I wasn't really curating the types of things that I wanted to work on. And so more and more I started to get like financial stuff or tech companies, like which I enjoy working doing stuff for tech companies. Um, say for example, like I've done a lot of work on Verizon, on AT&T, like I mentioned before, I just shot and produced a spot for, um, for Spectrum. And so, you know, I've worked on Apple before as well. And so I enjoy working on technology, but I wish I put more like sports and fitness related stuff in my portfolio as I was coming up. And so, you know, it's never too late to make the change. Like I could, you know, definitely whip off some spec stuff or maybe dig up and maybe re-art direct some of the things I've done that were in the category. Because like I've worked on like Visa before and they had, you know, an NFL partnership and an Olympics partnership. So the stuff like that, that I could um, throw back, throw in my book or re-art direct. I've also done some stuff on ESPN and, you know, I could probably just kind of like tighten things up with that and get that in there. But, you know, I'd love to do stuff for fitness and, you know, sports related things. And I don't really have as much of that as I would like. One of the things with doing that kind of work is that sometimes it also can pigeonhole you because like, I'll give you an example. Uh, When I started off my studio, we did a lot of political work because it was honestly just available. There was the uh, right when Obama got elected and a lot of politicians were suddenly needing to have a web presence or needing to have a social media presence. And so we had a lot of political, you know, just kind of work that we did not across any particular party line. And after a while, we kind of got pigeonholed into just doing that sort of stuff. Like nonprofits, for example, would come to us and they'd say, oh, well, you know, we we would, but you've worked with these politicians before and blah, 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 blah. Um, and eventually I kind of had to just stop including the work in my portfolio. It was good work. I was proud of the work. But the problem was that even though it was good work that I had done, just the categorization of it was holding me back from being able to do other things or work in other, you know, kinds of fields. Yeah. And and it kind of reflects a lack of 
vision on the part of the people who are making these decisions about who to hire or who to work with. You know, as a creative professional, as you are and as I am, you know, we it's almost like a doctor. You you don't really turn away patients. You try to do the best job you can with whatever the issue the patient has, and you seek to do no harm. And it's like that whenever I get get assignments, you know, I try to do the best I can for whatever that is and always come up with compelling stuff as a creative professional. And so whether it is something like I was saying before, you know, like um, something on Verizon or, you know, it could be something that's a bit more fun, like even some work I did recently with McGarry Bowen on Subway. Um, and it was like this like, kind of going at McDonald's, that work. You know, I could go from that to maybe doing something in healthcare. You know, I've worked on like Humera before at Saatchi Wellness or, you know, worked on like opioid induced constipation medicine uh, at a place called BGB Group. And so as a creative professional, we have to be able to wear many hats. And so it kind of sucks when you go to agencies and they assume that you can only do what they see, mm -hmm. which sort of like, you know, it undermines what we're actually capable of. Yeah, I, in a way, I, mean, I could see how it could be sort of up to the clients to try to figure it out. But then, you know, not every client also is going to just be that informed. Like they want what they want and they hopefully want something that's going to fall in line with what exactly it is they need. So um, I know that I've heard clients before say that they want good designers, but they only want designers that have done basically exactly the kind of field that they're in or something like that. So it's a, I think it's a double-edged sword. Like I, I certainly understand it, I think from both perspectives now, but I do agree that, you know, we kind of need to open it up and make sure that, at least when clients are approaching designers to know that just because you see these things, it doesn't mean it's the only thing that they can do. Like ask them, Oh, well, I guess the clients can ask, but then the designers can ask as well that what they're open to, what the clients are open to in terms of new types of things. It should be a, it should be quid pro quo it should be a conversation, not just a transaction. Yeah. And, and I get your point too, when you're saying it from a client perspective, like, you know, but when it comes to the agency perspective, I, I feel like the agency should know better, you know, like, Oh, Oh yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. They should know about the versatility of their creatives and, you know, the creative process better than a client who's probably scared, you know? So they're like, okay, we just want to, we want, you know, we want to see what's familiar and to know that the person can do what's familiar, but then that also puts it at risk things really looking so uniform in the category. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's nice sometimes to see some fresh thinking, but I do definitely get your point from a client perspective. Like, you know, they, they actually have the choice so they could just say, oh, OK, well, I really like, you know, I have a headphone company and I really like what this creative did on Beats. So let me hire that creative. Yeah. When did you first get this kind of uh, spark for design? Because I can definitely tell that you're very passionate about it. But when did it first come about? Uh, <laughs> that's that's cool to ask um, because. I know many people come into things late, um, but from a very young age, I was always like the school art guy, the school designer. I mean, I'm talking from like seven, eight years old. You know, I was the one doing like the drawings and stuff for the school publications and, you know, and what have you. And then eventually I, when I enrolled at, at high school, it's a prep school in New Hampshire called St. Paul's, which is a bit of a culture shock considering I'm from Brooklyn, Queens, and then the Bronx. And so I got there and eventually while there, took a design class, did really well in the design class. And then uh, during the summer, I was invited by the, the head design teacher, um, who her name was uh, Karen Burgess Smith. And she um, invited me to work on a series of posters and brochures 
for the school gallery because the school has a really nice art gallery that basically feels like a museum. And so I worked on those poster designs and she submitted them to this, uh, to what's called the American Association of Museums. And they have like a design publications award and we ended up winning the award. And this was against a bunch of professional graphic designers. I was only 17 years old at the time, like 16 going on 17. And, you know, and then while at school also, you know, I used to be like the school cartoonist and, you know, I was president of the graphic design group there. And sort of that really sparked my interest in design. But at the time, architecture was really what my, you know, go-to is. And I could talk a little bit more about that later. But um, when I got to Harvard, I uh, got to Harvard to, I basically was there to study architecture, but I was also the designer of um, what's called Harvard Student Agencies, which is the world's largest student-run corporation. And it had what was called HSA Type and Graphics, which was like this small like graphic design agency that was basically doing work for all the other agencies within uh, HSA, and then also doing work for clients in Cambridge and in Boston. And so eventually I became the head designer of that. And then Jay changed the name to Harvard Graphic Design. And then I also took a design class while at Harvard. But, um, but Harvard isn't really known for its graphic design and visual uh, like communication design stuff. Um, and so design was, you know, became my thing while I was there. And then um, the manager of Harvard Graphic Design, her name was Carolyn Yu, she did this program called the MAPE program. Uh, the Multicultural Advertising Intern Program. Um, I know you featured uh, some people who were involved with that in some of your podcasts, like Tracy Coleman. Mm -hmm. And she she told me, she was like, hey, you know, like, you'd be great at this. Like, you could be an art director in an ad agency, and you're basically doing the stuff that we do. And I didn't really know what art direction was. I knew about design, but not art direction. And so I applied to get in that program and uh, was accepted and interviewed at a bunch of agencies. And BBDO was really impressed with my work. And so they brought me in. So BBDO being that kind of first agency job, I know just from doing my research that you really, that's really where you kind of started your career in a way. I mean, you built up there, you were there for nine years. What was that whole time like for you? <laughs> that was an interesting time. So I started as a MAPE intern and I was partnered with a, a, an art director named Chris Curry. And it turns out actually BBDO thought I was a writer because um, like, you know, it's hard to believe that they're art directors that would come out of Harvard. Um, even though like Jeff Goodby went to Harvard. Um, and so anyway, you know, I was partnered with this guy, Chris Curry, you know, he's a talented artist, um, an art director, and we were working together on many projects and we got an assignment for CNBC and we created a series of outdoor advertising, um, print advertising. Uh, there was like radio spots and TV spots and then work was featured on the company Real. And so as an intern, I thought, okay, you know, great. I mean. You know, it'd be hard for them to want to get rid of me. Like, I'm pretty promising. And so they said, you know, we, what we're going to do is we're going to promote you to an assistant art director role. And you'd spend half your time concepting and working on creative and the other half your time uh, in the paste up studio or the paste up bench, as it's called. Hmm. And just like uh, the stereotype of advertising, that offer is a bit misleading. Most of the time I spent was in the paste up studio mounting everybody else's ads and so I got to see the good and bad and the ugly of these ads coming through. Uh -huh. And felt like, you know, man, like, you know, I could do better than some of this stuff. Um, but still, you know, I was pretty junior because I was an, only an assistant art director. And so I took a number of classes at Ad House. Um, it's like advertising school in New York. And so I took an advanced concept development class, a focus on portfolio class and a focus on art direction class. 
and put together my portfolio, put it in this nice suitcase because this is back when before everyone had their stuff online. And it ended up being a footrest for <laughs> the senior creative leader there, uh, Charlie Niesmer, who's an awesome guy, ended up being a great mentor for me. But at the time, it was just hard for me to get him to open that, that suitcase, that portfolio case. Mm-hmm. And so finally he did. And he was really impressed with the work to the point of like talking about it in Shoot Magazine and how, to quote him, he said he felt like a schmuck for not checking out that work sooner. And so then he promoted my partner and I, and we became juniors. So then we were junior art director and junior copywriter for a while. We ended up working under uh, Susan Cradle and, um, and Steve Rutter. Susan Cradle is now basically one of the most uh, awarded uh, advertising creatives in the world. And she's an, you know the chief creative officer or the global chief of um, FCB. And so we worked under her, working on M&Ms, we worked on Snickers, Pizza Hut, um, like many brands, and created some great work. We won a few awards. And then eventually I was promoted to mid-level art director. And so at that point, it became clear to me that you know, DVDO is a tough place to be as a junior, um, especially the way it was. Like the way it was, you'd have these, and pardon the term, like gangbangs, and everybody would work on certain assignments. And if you were the small fish in the big pond, you were going to get last choice. Mm. And so I still managed to produce work, but you know, I was really, I really had to claw my way up while I was there. And then it got to the point um, after David Lubars came in, he was bringing a lot of his people from Fallon, uh, where he was. And, you know, it, it was just a lot tougher to produce, even though I was still producing. And then eventually I decided to leave and I became a senior art director. And that's when I started to really see growth um, in my career after leaving. And it's an interesting thing, too. Like sometimes it's great, you know, when when something isn't really for you and you see it's not, it's like whether you get laid off or not, it can sometimes be the, a blessing um, because it can almost force you into positive changes in your life that you might not have if you don't make that change. And so I, I think it ended up being a, a great move. And, you know, like, and BBDO is a great place to be. I actually ended up going back there um, back from 2014 to 2016. And it was a lot better because I was more experienced. But um, yeah, that was basically the, my story of BBDO that, that eight to close to nine years. It sounds like it was really aggressive being there. It was challenging. I mean, there were some weeks I worked like 110 hours in a week, Ooh. you know, sleeping there. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I would get up, you know, I'd go to the gym just to take a shower and come back. And I was broke. So, like, I had to drink the free milk from the company fridge. And that was like how I was getting by. And it was tough and particularly tough because at that stage of my life, I was really like young, was super fit. And I didn't really respect how my mind needs like sleep, needs to eat right you know, exercise is something I did, but I was really pushing myself. Uh-huh. And there were some lessons that I learned about that, about trying to learn how to have balance and to cut out some time for yourself and for your own mental health, just to be able to like, be able to, to be as on point as you can. Because uh, yeah, I was really stretched thin for the first bunch of years there. And later on, I felt like I got, I came into my own, I got my, my shite together, but yeah, it was definitely challenging. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, when did you start to get that balance between work and life to kind of even things out? It took a while. I, I think like maybe even like 2006 or seven. And I started, you know, I was promoted to a junior in 2002. And so it took like a good four or five years before I was like, okay, you know, um, where I, I, I really started to respect my body and respect my mind and not just like, you know, burn a candle at mm-hmm. both ends. 
you know, and I was still very much like young and still, you know, I was kind of protesting a little bit inside. Like I wanted to have work-life balance, even though there really wasn't any. And so I still tried to have it a bit anyway. And so that meant, you know, many nights of just like three or four hours of sleep, you know, just because I, uh, you know, I had a life outside of that. Like while I was at BBDO early, I would take outside clients. And, you know, at one point I partnered up with my high school roommate. He was like one of my, he was basically one of my closest mm -hmm. friends, Charles Best. And he's the creator of the, uh, he came up with the idea while he was a teacher in New York public schools, you know, he saw that he didn't have the supplies he needed and, and he had to pay for them on his own, as did many teachers and students didn't have supplies that they needed. And so he said, you know what, wouldn't it be great if you could ask donors to donate towards certain projects or supplies or whatever it might be to help these students. And so he came up to me at, um, about the idea for donorschoose.org. Mm. And so I ended up being the first volunteer and creative director for Donors Choose. And this is while I was still in the paste up bench. And so that went on for about seven years while I was like, you know, still at BBDO. Um, but I thought it was really important to be doing things like that, too, you know, and to not make life in the ad agency is my only only life. And so Donors Choose ended up, you know, it, it still exists now. It does great. It's helped millions of students get uh, a better access to education. They're, they're mostly underserved students. And so, um, yeah, that, that's been great. I also, at one point was the, um, MAPE alumni association creative director. And this is while I was at BBDO. And so the MAPE program was really important to me. You know, that's one of the key ways to help diversify the advertising industry. And so I wanted to do whatever I could to give back. So I was doing that as well. And so, yeah, I was just really busy while I was there. Man, none of this sounds like the movie boomerang at all. I feel, I feel bamboozled in a way. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Like my experience in multicultural sometimes had tastes of boomerang. <laughs> so let's talk about diversity in the advertising industry. Cause I know that's a pretty hot topic. It's something that certainly uh, consumers see a lot whenever they see ads that kind of ring really wooden in terms of, you know, kind of, racial representation, gender representation, et cetera. How do you see it in the industry right now from your vantage point? I feel as though it's uh, it's crawling along, slowly but surely getting better, but there's still so much more work to be done. And uh, I'm kind of at the point now where I'm sort of like sipping my tea. I know you're a tea lover, like sipping my tea and kind of mm -hmm. watching and waiting for the next car wreck. Um, just so, like, for example, you know, I know many people know about H&M and the, the, the mistake they made, their flub of showing a young black kid with a hoodie that said coolest monkey in the jungle. And that led to, like, you know, operating profit loss of, like, 62%, which was their lowest number since 2005. You know, then we, many of us know about that Pepsi spot featuring Kendall Jenner. I mean, it wasn't Kendall Jenner's fault necessarily about that. But, you know, she offers a can during a protest to the police, so mm -hmm. policemen. And that somehow just ends the, uh, the, the the strife and the rift. And that sort of made a mockery of like Black Lives Matter and these other protests. And then recently there's this Ancestry.com uh, ad, there's Ancestry ad, where there's, you can't really tell if it's, a, if it's a white man and he's with a black woman and you can't tell if she's a slave or, or what, but he's asking her, you know, just escape to the North, you know, and then we could be together. It's a spot called Inseparable. And it just felt like, God, like, didn't we just 
you know, uncover so many issues of the like hashtag Hollywood is so white. Mm-hmm. Like it felt totally mm-hmm. like hashtag like Madison Avenue is so white, you know, like who's coming up with this stuff? Who like and how come like, it, it's clear to me that there aren't people of color or people who at least have like legitimate, diverse mindsets in those rooms when these ideas are being made. And these companies oftentimes are just breathing in their own fumes and they really just don't, you know, think about, they don't even question enough about these moves that they're making. And so I'm hoping, and I hate to say it because I'm not one that wants negativity, but I do recognize that sometimes you have to have a little suffering or a little pain in order to make that next move that's going to be better for you. And so I'm hoping that this agency, I mean, these agencies um, flub again. And so they really get it that this is not just something that's great, you know, just to have legitimate relationships with your customer base who are diverse, you know, super diverse. But like, you know, this is all about also your profits. Like this is going to eat away your profits if you don't do things right. And so we saw, you know, we see that when companies do take a stand, like Nike with uh, the Colin, with Colin Kaepernick thing, um, Nike did really well because of that. And then the people who were like, oh, I'm going to burn your jersey, I'm going to burn your shoes, like. You know, they, they weren't the biggest and best customers anyway. Yeah. And so the majority of the consumer base rallied around Nike. And actually, there's some research that's saying that that even isn't enough. That, you know, these, these consumers, particularly millennials, they want to see that you're really about it when it comes to taking a stand and supporting, say, diversity or supporting social causes or whatever it might be. They don't want it just to be lip service. They want you to really be in it. And so... Yeah, I'm, you know, like I was saying before, I'm just going to sip some tea. And if I get called upon to try to make things better, I'm more than happy to offer my services and uh, we'll see how things go. I mean, but like we've said before, this is something that has been going on for years. And certainly I think there's probably a um, there might be a flipboard in somebody's office where it's like zero days since last, you know, offending ad or something like that. (laughs) What do you really think it's going to take to to make this change? Because this has been something that has been going on for years, I would say decades at this point. Of course, you have uh, events and, and organizations like Ad Color and the Marcus Graham Project, et cetera, you know, speaking of Boomerang, that are certainly trying to help, you know, change the tide as it relates to the numbers in the industry, which hopefully then will reflect in the advertising. But why do you think it still just hasn't like made a difference yet? I still think we have some of these dinosaurs that are um, running things and they're not letting go. And they probably are surrounded by a lot of yes men and yes women. And, you know, they're not really being checked. And so if there's some greater accountability, I think we'll see some changes. You know, when I take a look at like our political climate and you see what's like happening in the White House and how like even though there's some clear issues, like clear issues about the planet, clear issues about like reproductive rights and but these people in power, they're, they're, they're not being affected by their actions yet. Not, not enough. You know, like they're not being forced to resign enough. Mm-hmm. Like, so they don't really get the consequences yet. And so until that really happens where they see some major like operating profit losses or they see like major, you know, when, enough to shake them out of their bubbles, um, then I think we'll start seeing some changes. Or, and this is what I've been liking lately because of what's going on in the, you know, this political climate and in this world, many of us are just like, you know what, like, fuck it. We're just going to do our own thing. We're going to start our own brands. We're going to be our own content creators. We're going to, you know, rally behind the issues that we find are most important. And it's like, that's sort of forcing everybody else to take notice. And so 
I, I'm actually liking, you know, you know, the fact that this pressure is making diamonds the way it is. You know, I'm I'm actually liking seeing what many of my peers and colleagues are doing. And, you know, a lot of us when we, you know, we're working in agencies and stuff, we start to see that, man, like we're the ones doing so much of this work. Like we could do this. Like, you know, we could do these things on our own yeah. if we develop the, the right client relationships. Like we don't necessarily need, you know, to work at an agency or whatever and and just keep that cycle going. And so so much in, of life is people just going along with what, how things are. But like, but I see stuff changing now and, you know, I'm, I welcome it. Yeah, it sounds like what I think needs to happen is and this is similar to uh, the design industry as well, in that there needs to be a shift in equity. Um, sort of, as you said before, like you've got the, the older dinosaurs at the top that are, are kind of still running things. If there was a shift in equity that would allow more people that are underrepresented in a number of different ways to have that seat at the table, that's, that is how I think, you know, the real change is probably going to happen. Yeah. Um, certainly the fact that, that, you know, we are doing more things to kind of put that culture out there is great. But kind of what ends up happening is you're still in a way being drowned out by these larger, bigger agencies or entities or et cetera. But that shift in equity, I think, is what's going to be important. Um, and then we're kind of seeing it, I would say, you know, not to get too political, but I think we're sort of seeing it right now in the government, for example, the new like freshman class of senators and representatives that have come in have really started like, you know, making change, you know, Al uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and others have started being really vocal about issues and it's causing things to happen or at least the conversation to happen, which was more than what was happening before. Yeah. And and that's great because um, so much, like I was saying before, it's, it's about the expectation and so many people have become jaded and, you know, just assume things have to be the way they are. And then they stop trying to make those changes. And so you know, I'm hoping this all builds momentum and we get to see things turn around. It's a little interesting too, you know, we're talking about, how a lot of these sort of people at the top, how uh, you know they they typically are like it's, it's typically homogeneous. And I'm reminded of a, a sort of controversial Oprah quote, and she was asked, you know, how do we get rid of racism? And she talked about how there are certain groups of people in, like, say, the South, or a lot of them are older, and their racism is so deep, and they hold on to it tight, and it's all they know. And, you know, I'm just going to use this example as a metaphor. And she was saying, well, those people are just going to have to die. Mm. And <laughs> I don't actually, you know, mean death when it comes to these people at the top. But, you know, but there has to be a changing of the guard at the top. And, you know, you know, you're talking about politics. As long as we have these like, you know, Congress people who are in there for life and then they're bought off by like the Koch brothers and whatever, you know, then it's just harder to make change. Like, you know, with Alabama, which just happened. You know, all those officials, they just did what they did. And that had nothing to do with the voice of the people. Yeah. And so, yeah, it has to just be the top has to get shaken up. So but I do like seeing that, you know, people are being fearless down coming from the bottom, you know, and coming and people are more in the middle. And, you know, like you mentioned, AOC, you know what she's doing. Like, yeah, like the more people can see like, hey, yeah, we can make change the more they're going to jump on and try to make the changes they can too. Just in your own sphere, your own circle, like if you try to make change, people will gravitate towards that. And so it's not like, you know, a lot of people think that the change has to be huge and has to be big, but just in your life as, you, as an individual, if you're just doing what you can, you know, that starts to, to resonate and reverberate and then it grows. And so, 
yeah, I'm excited to see that momentum build. Yeah. So let's kind of let's let's take the shift back to Korea. Like I said, we don't want to get too too political on you. We're not that kind of show. But um, <laughs> so I know that, that you've worked at a ton of agencies since leaving BBDO. Um, you worked at Havas, you worked at Digitas, you worked at KBS, etc. Um, you landed at Global Hue for a while. You worked there for I think for about four years. When you got there, after kind of doing a string of I don't know, almost permalance, I guess, opportunities at a bunch of different agencies. How was that long-term agency experience different from your time at BBDO? Uh, it was way different. Um, and surprise, like, I don't know if this sounds right, but people at Global Hue, they worked really hard. And so at least that felt the same. Um, but I just had more of a sense at, at Global Hue that people were really rooting for me and for my success. Like I was brought in with my partner and I was working under Desmond Hall who was uh, Spike Lee's right-hand man back at Spike. And, you know, he really tried to nurture me. And, you know, we went over, the, like, more sort of nuances and details about, how, like, presenting well and have, kind of having fun with it and, you know, the right mindset to have when it came to that. And um, he also was very, you know, he always had his door open. was like, hey, come, you got a minute? Come in here, come in here. And so I got to see that as a creative leader, you know, you have to like check in with your creatives often mm -hmm. and, you know, and doing that, that's where you can really uncover some like juicy nuggets of creativity. And so, you know, it was a great experience. It was also great in that, you know, I felt like in some ways I felt like I was sort of giving back, you know, I'd learned all these skills and all that at BBDO and, you know, and it was definitely great, but, um, but advertising for, and for lack of a better term for my people, you know, but I was advertising for African Americans, and then at some, and at other points also, you know, the Latin, the Latinx um, population, and so doing it for both, it felt like I was coming back home, like things are coming full circle, and so there was a bit of, and I was pretty motivated before, but it was a little bit of extra motivation because I realized a lot of what I'd be creating could really affect the mindset of my own people, and I, I saw even more as I got older, you know, that like you know, how much we really needed it, how we really needed, you know, to have a sense of empowerment and, you know, and positivity. And so almost all the advertising I would do would seek to do that. You know, I handled all of Verizon's Black History Month initiatives, um, except for one um, when I first got there. And that was handled by Nisha Tweed, who's now at Facebook. Um, but after that, you know, I was handling all their Black History Month initiatives and, you know, just really trying to like uplift up my people. And then, I also felt like the agency itself was rooting for me, you know, when I would go to the clients in, uh, like, say, in Verizon and Basking Ridge, you know, we would be, that relationship was supposed to be with McGarry Bowen, and they're the general market agency, and there are all these other partner agencies. But sometimes it got competitive. It felt like instead of us working together, sometimes it was us versus them. So I'd hit to get, to, to get there, I would present. I knew that my agency was huddled around the phone the way people would huddle around the radio, you know, in the past you know, during a sports game or something. And it was great to know when I would do really well, you know, people would like, you know, when I got back to the agency, a lot of pats on the back, like people were really proud. And, you know, that really just made me happy. Like I felt like people were really supportive. Whereas, you know, at BBDO, like there are a lot of really driven people, but for the most part, they're trying to get their own awards. They're trying to put, you know, pencils and lines and whatever on their own shelves. Mm -hmm. And so, Sometimes they would nurture the younger creatives to do that, but some, you know, but most of the time it was really about their own ideas. And so, 
yeah, th- th- that's what really felt different to me. I really felt like people were rooting for me a bit more um, when I was at Global Hue. And so now you're, like you said, you're freelancing, you're working with a number of different clients. Given your longevity now in the industry, how have you seen the agency model change over the years? I've seen it change a lot, and it's still changing at a rapid pace. Some people are saying that the agency model, you know, the agencies are dying. And, you know, recently we saw how uh, Accenture just bought Droga 5. Um, Some agencies are like scrambling just to try to deal with the changes. And so you see these mergers. Like uh, like YNR merging with VML, and now it's like <laughs> it feels like a wheel of fortune. It's like YML, uh, is it VML, YNR, <laughs> um, just so many <laughs> letters. And so we're seeing these consultancies um, and and companies that weren't typically like traditional creative advertising agencies or whatever. They're starting to you know steal some market and so some market share. And so I see that, you know, many creatives have to evolve and many agencies have to evolve. Like another place that I freelanced at for a bit was RGA. And, you know, they have RGA Ventures, which is basically like a consultancy. And, you know, they create a lot of like original like IP, which is like a bit different than what you see in normal agencies. Um, Even BBDO at one point, you know, I think they still have it. They have a consultancy division. And, you know, I used to know more about it. There's a guy named Sangeet Pillai who was over there. And but now he's at uh, Verizon. And so we're seeing many creatives, too, starting to leave the agencies and either, you know, doing their own thing or going client side. And so a lot of clients also are doing more stuff in-house. And so as a creative, it's a great opportunity. But um, if, if you don't evolve, you're still stuck in the past and you go the way of the dodo. Mm. How do you see agencies working with consultancies now? I think they're trying to figure each other out still. Like agencies are great when it comes to the creativity, but maybe not necessarily speaking the language of uh, the consultancies or those clients that they would get, that consultancies would get. You know, they're, they're more like data focused and it's more about ROI and um, agencies, some of them are still more concerned about like just consumer engagement and, you know, likability and entertainment. And, you know, like there's still some reconciling that needs to be done. So you've worked in the industry for a while in terms of working at all these different agencies. Of course, you got your start uh, learning about design at Harvard. But then even after all this time that you've worked in the industry, you went back to school uh, you went to Parsons. Can you talk about why you chose Parsons and what made you decide to kind of go back at this stage in your career? Yes, that's uh, another great question. And I think it's relevant to everything I was just saying, too. You know, at the advertising industry, even the design industry, there are just many changes. And when I first started in advertising, you know, I had some design experience. Like I said, I had one design class in high school one design class at Harvard, tons of like color theory and studio art and all that other stuff. But then basically after that, I was working in advertising as a creative and I didn't really have a formal design education. And I know we see that a lot. I think there's some benefits to not necessarily spending your formative years just learning about design. And so so then I took a, you know, at a certain point after certain assignments, especially while freelancing, you know, I saw that like the old school way of being an art director who just knows what the idea should be, knows how it should look and has some design fundamentals, but then hands it off to the design department. You know, you can't do that. And so many times I would see, you know, a great idea could live or die just based on how it looked, because a lot of times some clients and 
some people internally, like some account people or whatever, you know, might lack some imagination. And so I saw that I go, okay, you know, I really need to make sure that I'm up on it when it comes to design. And so, you know, I started by taking some continuing ed classes at the School of Visual Arts. So I took a design class, a visual branding class, an advanced Photoshop class, a concepting class, and a um, integrated creative, uh, like fully, like an integrated creative class. So it's like five classes at SVA. And then I kept, you know, doing my thing and, you know, I felt more confident and the work was better and things looked tighter. Um, but because like I was saying before, I'd only taken a few design classes. I felt like, like I, I just wanted to, uh, take it to the next level and to feel way more confident, even though I was confident, I wanted to take it to the next level and to make sure that when I start entering senior leadership roles, I knew what the hell it was I was talking about. And so we saw how the advertising industry went from TV, print, outdoor, and radio to, you know, these all these media touch points that, you know, they were so vast, especially with the rise of like mobile handsets and social media um, and digital capabilities um, were, you know, starting to really accelerate. And so then we started seeing how experience design, like whether it's user experience design, user interface design, or just experiential advertising, you know, we started to see that brands weren't just concerned about getting through to a customer in that moment and having them say, oh, I really like that brand. You know, I really like that product. They had to continue to, to keep that relationship with them on a brand like strategy perspective. And so we have all these touch points, all these points of interaction. And I, I needed to know that I was not just knowledgeable, but was really learning from people who specialized in that. Because like I was saying before, being a freelancer, you know, a lot of the times you just have to watch people, but people, especially as you get more senior, they aren't necessarily going to take their time to, you know, to school a freelancer and coach a freelancer. And so Parsons had um, their inaugural year of a Master of Professional Studies in um, Communication Design, which focused on digital product design, UX and UI design. There was interaction. There was also front-end developing, uh, you know, and front-end, you know, like um, HTML5, mm -hmm. CSS, JavaScript. Um, and, and some other stuff too. And so to me, it felt like, okay, that would be a great way to round out my skill set and to make sure that I actually had more mastery in design, you know, design thinking and, and, and all that. And so I decided to enroll in the program and well, I applied, I got in and it ended up having like some sentimental value to me too. So it wasn't just about, you know, trying to get that degree, but I was also, um, and I don't know if you really know, know this yet, but I was my mother's caregiver for about 17 years as she battled uh, metastatic breast cancer. Mm. And like public health is something that I'm, you know, really up on. And I really did my best to try to help her. And she lived a very long time and then passed away. And so it became that I wanted to finish uh, that degree to sort of honor her. And so while in that program, then it turned out my grandmother and my father passed away. Oh, wow. And then my cousin. And so that program and getting that degree not only made me you know, I was striving just to be better. I also wanted to make them and their spirits proud. Mm. And so, you know, I was happy to do the program and I feel more confident about taking these senior leadership roles. And then also one of the things too is, you know, there's a, because a lot of these agencies are homogeneous, they don't necessarily, at least in my mind, trust that someone of color can come in and really knows what they're talking about. And obviously in case by case situations, they like will totally trust, you know, the people that they're working with. 
but you have to prove yourself. And so as a freelancer coming in, because usually it's temp to perm, you know, I had to make sure that coming in, I knew what I was talking about and could right out of the gate establish my authority and help them learn that or see that like I knew what I was talking about. I did really add value and then can be trusted for further assignments. That makes sense now that you kind of, you know, given all those explanations around it. I was just curious because I know when I was so I didn't go to design school at all. I mean, I went to just a a, a regular liberal arts school called Morehouse. No, <laughs> but I, I I went to Morehouse. I, I yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good school. I went to Morehouse. I majored in math, and I you know even when I graduated, I didn't have any kind of uh, prospects in terms of jobs. I mean, I could be a math teacher, or I could go back to school, and I didn't really want to do either one of those things. I had been doing design kind of just in my spare time. And eventually had built up my portfolio enough where I actually got a design job. And so got a design job, I think, about three years after I graduated from college, worked at a bunch of places around the city for a few years, and then quit, started my studio. Even now, like up until this point, like we're, we're doing this interview right now in 2019, I have not had any sort of formal design schooling or knowledge or education at all. And part of me does wonder if I need that, like if I decide to, you know, go back into the design industry at some point. I mean, I feel like I keep abreast of what's happening in the industry about technologies and things of that nature. But I don't know what it is about having the degree that kind of makes it kind of like solidifies it, I guess. Yeah. And I also am quite impressed. Like I I learned that about you and I'm quite impressed of what you were able to accomplish not having it. and I don't think everyone needs to. I found, though, for me, I was sort of reinventing the wheel for every assignment a lot of the time mm-hmm. and arriving at certain solutions after lots of trial and error and in some ways thinking that that one solution was the best solution. And design school is helpful because it, it helps you see that there's so many different great solutions. And if you really start to get mastery of certain principles, like you know, like in human-centered design, you know, learning about accessibility, um, you know, there's certain principles and things that you can learn where you can arrive at your solutions faster because like your, your toolkit is now full. Mm-hmm. And so it actually has been somewhat helpful for me because like, I felt like for every assignment before, because I didn't have a formal design education, it was a lot of like coming up with things and they would work, but I didn't quite get why, like mm. I didn't quite have mastery of like say contrast and color and form or using grid systems, you know, like I would end up like just approximating things when I did certain layouts and it would work. But like, then it's like, Oh, as a tool, you might just want to start with the grid and things just came together a lot faster. And so it it did help me just to have more confidence. Um, I don't think that people necessarily need to have it. I know you featured people who were really successful who didn't have it. Um, I also, like I was kind of uh, saying before, I think it, it it can be a disservice to people to have too much of a design education, like say in college, when you really should just be filling up with like more of a liberal arts education, like which you, you know, you talked about Morehouse, like learning about the world, learning, you know, like absorbing those ideas. That's where you really start to develop the right mindset. And then later on, you know, having some design education is helpful. Um, you know, like some people can just go to lynda.com and learn some things. They don't necessarily need the degree. Um, you know, but there was a part of me that saw it as like this goal, you know, like coming out of Harvard, you know, some ways I was like, okay, if I do want to get a degree, like I I want it to sort of top 
you know, the the name recognition of Harvard, at least in my own mind. I know it doesn't, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't really care, you know, and I felt Parsons, which is like, you know, one of the top five design schools, I think in the world, you know, I feel like, okay, you know, I'll get to learn from some of the best and I, I won't have to dig for everything on my own. Like, you know, people can then present certain concepts or principles to me that I could absorb. And it's, it wouldn't be as, as hard as if I was like, you know, trying to pave that way independently. Yeah. And so I found that it was helpful, especially when it came to user experience design and uh, digital product design. And, you know, the world is going more and more that way. You see at agencies, you know, you have your, your marketing and advertising peeps, and then you have your, um, your product design peeps. And if I ever, you know, a- as I rise in the ranks and potentially go full time, you know, I want to be able to give actionable and insightful, you know, wisdom onto anything that's coming my way. And, you know, for me, it ended up giving me the confidence to feel more like that's feasible. And now speaking of design education, you're about to embark on sort of a design education journey of your own at SVA, right? Uh, yes, I'm uh, since Jan- um, since February. No, not January. Since uh, December, I've been doing lesson planning. Um to prepare for a creative methodology class called Killer Work. And I'm co-teaching that with someone named Mark Simon Burke. He's a really great guy. He'd been teaching uh, the creative methodology class for 20 years. Um, I was actually a student of his in the past. And you know, I, I really am a fan of lifelong learning, of not only learning, but then giving back and you know, teaching. And so that class is about to start in the beginning of June. And uh, I'm excited for it. Um, I also have been just doing a lot of other things in education because like giving back is something that was sort of instilled in me at a young age. Uh, there was a, a man named John Hoffman who founded the Albert G. Oliver program. And one of the tenets of the program is to make sure that people did community service and gave back. And so, you know, over the years, I've done many things for education beyond, you know, what I did for Donors Choose. Um, I've also uh, did a lot of stuff for the four A's and, you know, the four A's American Association of Advertising Agencies, they're the ones that created the MAPE program. Mm -hmm. So I've done like React competitions. I was part of their high school education initiative diversity steering committee. Um, I used to volunteer to do their um, education initiative career days, like helping some of these younger students. I also, for ad council, used to do like the advertising futures program and, and even, you know, did some one club portfolio reviews. So I'm constantly trying to give back. And now that you mentioned it too, I, um, was also trying to be a substitute teacher to teach at these two different advertising high schools that were created because the advertising industry was sued for being for lacking diversity. But rather than just start like, making it rain in the streets, they were like, all right, well, let's um, fund two advertising high schools. And one of them is called Mecca or the Manhattan Early College of Advertising. And the other is called High School I Am or the High School of Innovation of Advertising and Media. And so I was doing substitute teacher, teacher training for those, and I only had one more thing to do, but that's when my mother passed away. Then I had to get shoulder surgery from a cycling injury, and then grad school started. And so I might revisit either doing the substitute teacher training for that, or there's another like a CTE program where I could actually just become a full-time teacher. And so I'm having a hard time trying to decide, if do I double down and just really get into education or keep making that the thing I do on the side? And um, I've been in talks also with Doug Davis, who you featured before on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's the chair of the BFA program at uh, the New York City College of Technology. And he's inviting me to potentially work with some students evaluating portfolios and then maybe even, you know, work my way up to being faculty. And so 
you know, I, I always want to give back and, you know, I feel like it's a good thing. It shows like, you know, it's just a good thing in general to be able to share wisdom and nurture who's coming up. And so, you know, I'm excited about the class at SBA and I'm excited about any of these educational things that are coming down the road. When you look back at your career, like what do you wish you would have known when you first started? That's another good question too. Like I try to think abundantly and sometimes it could bite me in the ass. Um, I think early in my career, especially coming out of Harvard, then selling all that work that I sold as an intern, um, being at BBDO, which is basically one of the top ad agencies and basically the top ad agency network in the world. I just thought the opportunities were just going to keep coming. And so, you know, there are a few assignments where I did all right, but like a part of me sometimes wishes like, oh, like if I only knew or if only could have done this or, you know, if only just did a little bit extra on that. And, you know, I, I think people have to recognize that, yes, having a thinking, thinking in abundant, thinking abundantly is good. Don't take certain things for granted as a result mm. of that. And so, you know, if I, if I knew, you know, then what I know now, I think I would have boned up on my technical skills a little bit more. Um, you know, understanding that, like I was saying before, sometimes clients or, you know, internal teams might lack a bit of imagination. And sometimes they like to see those shiny objects. And so I might have been able to develop some of these things a little bit better. Like I've created some ideas that might have had mobile app components. But if I knew what I knew then, what I knew now, um, I would have been able to actually show how that app could work. So I'd be leaving less to the imaginations of people who are viewing the work. And I think really just like tackle each assignment kind of like it's your last because you never know when that one assignment, that one project you do is the thing that leads to the next thing, which then leads to the next thing. And it all builds momentum. And so, if, yeah, if I could change anything, I think, and as dedicated as I was, I'm pretty hard on myself. So right now I'm talking about, oh, I wish I went harder. I went pretty, pretty damn <laughs> hard. Like, you know, but I think I could have worked a little smarter. And, um, and so, yeah. I'd say that's something that uh, I carry with me a bit and I never want to have that feeling again. Mm. Now you've mentioned, I mean, this education that you're about to go into in terms of teaching and everything. And even what you're mentioning with Doug Davis, I'm curious when you look like further out, like let's say the next five years or so, what kind of work do you want to be doing? Where do you see yourself? Okay. I, I see myself doing a number of things. I think now, um, you know, I was talking about thinking abundantly you know, for a long time, I felt like you could only really do one thing, even though I had side things I was doing. When it came to my career and my source of income, I was only for a long time thinking that like one thing was really feasible. And more and more now I'm seeing that I could wear many hats. And so down the road, I see myself as more senior creative leadership, possibly full time somewhere. I also recently created an LLC. It's a creative consultancy. So I plan on also you know, engaging in, you know, work with more clients, you know, I've already, you know, had a number of them. Yeah, that's really what I see when it comes in a, in a creative standpoint. I see myself potentially also maybe rolling out like some mobile apps, you know, this idea I had for a mobile app before the app Headspace came out um, was a synchronized meditation app. And this is back in like 2010, you know, and there was some research that I came across. It was called the DC Crime Study. And it's a um, Basically, there are like a thousand transcendental meditators who tried to lower the crime rate just by meditation alone. And in this, the Institute of uh, Crime and Public Policy 
saw like about a 30% reduction in crime in comparison to other years um, hmm. during that time period. So I saw that and I thought yeah. that was really interesting. And I also started seeing stuff on like the power of focused intention and how, you know, focused intention can like alter the structure of water crystals. Like if you meditate in water crystals and examine them in a microscope, if you have positive emotions, it looks like snowflakes. If it's negative emotions, it looks like a warbled mess. And some of that research I started to see, you know, it was even after 9-11, um, there was um, the, there were these random event generators all around the globe. And there's this, uh, or, this company, this organization called the um, Global Coherence Initiative. And they noticed that the Earth's magnetic field had changes what they attributed to depressed emotions, like large scale depressed emotions. And so after seeing all this, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to just have a synchronized meditation app that you know allows people to meditate on certain issues simultaneously? And you know, from that DC crime study, there was a term called the, the, the Maharishi effect, which says that the square root of 1% of a population could affect that population. And so I wanted to roll out that app. I couldn't do it because I didn't really have the know-how. Headspace came out uh, afterwards. That was more about individual meditation. And it wasn't until grad school. I was like, all right, well, let me just make one of my projects what that app would be. And, um, and that's like in my portfolio now. Um, it's an app called Coherence. And so I see myself potentially like maybe even rolling that out or maybe rolling out another app or maybe a mobile game. Um, maybe even like some side stuff in like real estate. Um, and so I, I'm now more prepared to open myself up to the world and to, you know, allow things in and to pursue different paths and not have it only be just in advertising. Well, Husani, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Sure. Um, well, they could follow me on Instagram if you'd like. It's Husani Barnwell. Uh, it's H-U-S-A-N-I-B-A-R-N-W-E-L-L. There's also on Twitter. I'm Husani on Twitter. And I know that's a, I, I know Husani Oakley and that, that's, a, you know, that bothers him. <laughs> so, and I think you yeah, yeah. him as well. Before. Then is uh, on Pinterest. I keep a Pinterest profile that I, um, I go to regularly and I'm a super prolific a pinner. You know, I keep things organized by like typography or graphic design, fashion, you know, it's just so many different categories and I curate it really well. And so that's Husani Creative. Or you could find me on Working Not Working under Husani. All right. Sounds good. Well, Husani Barnwell, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for, I mean, first just talking about the work that you do, sharing the the years and years that you've put into this industry, but also really kind of communicating what your passion is behind why you do what you do, why you strive for excellence. I think that's something that people who listen to this will certainly um, pick up and learn from. And hopefully, you know, we'll be seeing more of you in the future, especially as it relates to design education. I think that's really something that is needed right now as more and more people are getting into design in a lot of non-traditional ways. Uh, some of them are going to four-year institutions, some of them are not, but I think it's still good to have people of color in the ranks in design education. So just, you know, just kind of putting that out there. But uh, no, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that you invited me. And, you know, I, I'm, I welcome being amongst all the esteemed company, you know, that you've already featured on the show. And so thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Husani Barnwell and thanks to you for listening. 
You can find out more about Husani and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, and it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. I mean, worldwide. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.